Hey listeners, before we get into today's podcast, I just first of all want to say thank you. Uh, This has been five years of podcasting for us, and I want to say thank you to those who have been here five years listening to us, and those who are, this is your first time listening. Um, It's been a a phenomenal journey and a lot of fun, and I, I can't think of how else I would like to spend the next five years other than continuing to podcast and bring, hopefully bring you guys some great shows and great interviews. Um, With that being said, I want to thank today's sponsors, first of which is Pretentious Pickles, Um, our good friends at Pretentious Pickles, located right here in Plymouth, Massachusetts on 190 Water Street, um, have a huge variety of pickled items for your um, consumption. There's pickled beets, Brussels sprouts, carrots, mushrooms, cucumbers, you name it, they've put it in a jar and pickled it. They make a phenomenal product and for the second year in a row have been nominated I'm sorry, not nominated, one uh, best gourmet shop in the South Shore, Massachusetts area. So congratulations to Lorraine and everyone at Pretentious Pickle Company. And if you can't make it to their store, you can stop by www.pretentiouspickle.com and you can place an order online. They'll ship it right to you. Um, it's if, if you're into pickles, you should definitely check that out. And our second sponsor today is HelloFresh. Do you feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less with over 25 recipes to choose from each week. There's something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure delicious and simplicity. And I was just over there on their website checking out uh, what they have to offer. And I'm telling you, it's making me super hungry. We have a prosciutto-wrapped chicken, which I'm such a sucker for prosciutto. Uh, Chicken over garlic parm, which looks delicious. And even a beef tenderloin and brown butter veggies. There's a lot to choose from over there. It looks fantastic. And today they're offering our listeners a discount. You can go to the link in our show notes to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh the number one meal kit. Welcome back, Inebriates. This is Andy, the Inebriart Podcast. And we're always trying to find something new and interesting uh, to keep you guys uh, informed and and, uh, something interesting to talk about. And today is definitely a first for the podcast. We have um, our first uh, medical doctor on the show. Uh, We have Suzanne Coven, uh, author and, I'm sorry, Dr. Suzanne Coven, uh, who is author of the book, uh, Letter to a Young Female Physician. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. No problem. Um, we were just talking about how you're definitely a little bit outside of what we normally get. Um, but, you know, you are an author and I think writing in any form takes some sort of creativity. But there's certain things that really struck me about um, your book. And one is I came from a family with um, some people in the medical field. So that was one thing, uh, you talk about imposter syndrome, which I feel like everyone, um, in 
if specific field or especially like in a creative field, I feel like it's very, very common. Um, mm-hmm. So that really caught my attention. And you talk about also um, basically a, 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 a woman's role, not a woman's role, but like a woman's experience in, in a industry that may not typically is more male dominated. Is that a, no, I think that'd be accurate to say about medicine yeah. and, and most, and most other fields. Yeah, so that's, that's very true. That's for sure. Um, so what made you decide to e- even a- approach this topic? Hmm. Uh, well, um, you know, as I think is often the case um, uh, for people um, writing books, particularly nonfiction books and particularly um sort of personal writing like memoir and and essays um the book sort of chose me more than i chose it mm-hmm. um the, the short version of the story is that um uh, well into my medical career i started writing you know taking night courses in in, in writing sort of revisiting my old english major roots mm-hmm. kind of as a really as a hobby the hobby developed into um, really a sort of a part of my profession. Had a, a, a medical column in the Boston Globe uh, for a few years, uh, really about what is this experience of doctoring, which is a very intense and, and in some ways very strange job. And then, um, and then uh, after I had published several essays, I realized, you know, I I kind of have a book here. And as I, I, you know, laid these essays out, I realized that I really kind of had led a medical life or a life that could be seen through a medical lens as a doctor, the daughter of a doctor, uh, as a patient, the, the child and the parent of patients. I mean, in some ways, we, we all, all of us who have bodies have led a medical life. And even my relationship with um, with being um, a woman, uh, with being a feminist, uh, with being a reader and a writer, could be seen through a medical lens, and um, and so that's how the book evolved. As is, I think, very often the case, the book I ended up writing wasn't quite the book I started out writing. I think that is almost universally the case. But this is this is where I landed, and. Having landed there um, and now having people read the book and talking to them about it, uh, I feel even more strongly than ever that it was sort of what I was meant to write about, particularly as I speak to young women about it. Now, from your experience, do you find it more challenging uh, from a female's perspective as far as your colleagues or from the patients? Because, I mean, I... I've never been in a medical field, but I worked um, retail at uh, Home Depot and they would, you know, customers would ask me for advice and I'd bring them, you know, to the person who knew about flooring or whatever. And and if it was a female, mm-hmm. it, frequently they would just kind of turn back to me and be like, well, is that right? I'd be like, I don't, I don't know. I brought you here because they know. And, mm-hmm. you know, so is it more custo- uh, customer, a patient or is it more from your colleagues that there's more mm-hmm. of a struggle? What an interesting question. Uh, interesting to me because it's neither. Um, I have ex- actually uh, 
experienced um, very little sexism from my patients, um, you know, here and there, uh, and not all that much sexism from my colleagues um, as individuals. what I have experienced and what young women in medicine continue to experience is a kind of structural sexism. You know, there's a, there's a pay, there's a pay gap um, uh, between men and women in, in practicing medicine. Um, there's, um, uh, there's harassment. There's a, there's a disproportionate uh, responsibility for, uh, for childcare for mm-hmm. women, you know, in, in, um, you know, male, female couples, uh, in medicine and in elsewhere. Uh, and also just kind of a, um, a culture, uh, which says that the, and this gets into really tricky gendered stereotyped, you know, territory. And I'm well aware of the pitfalls of that. But uh, a culture which says, uh, or, or which leads you to say to yourself, gee, these things that I think of as being female traits, mm-hmm. uh, empathy and ability to communicate and, and, and so forth, are important, but they're sort of like a baseline, like anybody can do that. Right. Whereas the things that I feel less confident about, those are the things that are somehow more valuable. And I, I have, I, I would say that men, men and women both feel this way. This is part of the imposter syndrome you mentioned. But women are more likely to say, oh, well, yeah, I'm really great at developing rapport with patients, but that's nothing because anybody can do that. Well, anybody can't do that. And mm-hmm. if you don't believe that, of course, just ask patients. It's the number one things that patients value. So um, your question is so interesting to me because it has not been an issue on an individual basis. It's been much more of an issue on a structural and cultural basis. So it's a more systemic kind of... Absolutely. And it persists um, to this day. That's interesting. Uh, Was it that way from the beginning, like even in like medical school? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, although what I'm only realizing now, and, and you know, when you, when you write about your own life, uh, one of the sort of challenges and joys of that is that, you know, you look back on, on things that, you know, events that are very familiar to you. I mean, it's your own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say, well, wait a minute. Why did that happen? Or why didn't I notice that or even question that and um uh yes it was very much so i mean let me give you you an example that i talk about in the book um so i got pregnant as a resident Mm -hmm. was working over 100 hours a week it did not occur to me or anyone else that it was not a great idea for a pregnant woman to be working those kinds of hours on her feet right and um, I developed a life-threatening complication of pregnancy. It all worked out okay, but you know, it was it made literally made me sick and put my life and my baby's life in danger. Now, I would have called myself a feminist 
then, um, you know, I had, I had um, done, you know, consciousness raising as early as seventh grade, mm-hmm. at, you know, read feminist theory in college. And yet here I was afraid to even think about the possibility of asking for an accommodation because I was afraid that I would be seen as the weak link. Right. That's, that was and still is a very big part of medical culture. It's a little bit like military culture. Don't complain. Don't be the weak link. Don't let down your team. And, um, and you know, so that's an example of where there was no, uh, there was no individual who was oppressing me. Mm-hmm. Uh, or literally making me sick. It was, you know, it was a, a structural and cultural uh, issue. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, I can't speak to being pregnant, obviously, but uh, y- you know, I, I listened to a uh, medical podcast, and uh, it's a female um, ho- host, and she talks about uh, going through um, her internship, and it. I had I knew of internship. I had no idea. I'm sorry. Is internship the right word? No, residency. Sorry. Um, I never had any idea how long those hours are, how difficult that process was, and to to do it when you're not in tip top health. And I mean, I suppose pregnancy is not unhealthy, but you, you, you know, it's it can be challenging, and uh, it's just that's amazing and. I'm also not surprised that it, it caused health problems. Yeah. 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 But I didn't, you know, it's funny, um, in, uh, as part of this book tour, um, uh, in one conversation I had, uh, with Meg Walzer, who's, uh, you know, a, a novelist, um, who, you know, writes a lot of strong female characters, um, mm-hmm. uh, in her most recent novel, there's a glorious Steinem character. And she asked me a really interesting question. She said, um, so, the, you know, these high achieving women that you were in residency with, did you ever talk about sexism? Did you ever talk about feminism? And I said, amazingly, no, we never talked about it. And it wasn't because it didn't exist. Believe me. I mean, we, as I say, we, we had all been feminists and studied, you know, feminist theory in college and, and, and even in high school. And yet somehow when we were thrust into this very male dominated environment, that all shut off. We were working really hard and, um, and we just, I think were afraid to question anything for fear that it would all fall apart. Now, of course, what I'm describing is sort of pretty out there and pretty exceptional, but I think that, um, I know that there are a lot of women and men too uh, in other fields uh, who experience, um, you know, experience these kinds of situations where, you know, you know, it's not quite right. uh, And yet you're afraid if you begin to question it, it's like, it's sort of like pulling a thread Mm -hmm. and, and pretty soon the sweater is gone. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, not to mix metaphors, but the whole thing is sort of cut out from under you. And, um, and so in, in talking to people about the book, 
uh, it's interesting to me how many women uh, who are young in medicine today and also not in medicine at all say, yeah, I, I get that. I get that feeling of I can't question this because then just the whole thing will just fall apart. Yeah. Uh, so I have a, a daughter. She's uh, 17. And we were having a conversation the other day and she was talking about um, how uh, she's LGBTQ plus and how she got kind of people who were like, oh, you know, supportive of other people. But like when it came to her kind of like, oh, well, not like you, you should not feel weird you know you're a girl or whatever and and she's like i don't know what i am and i'm like that's you know you should be happy with who you are and that's all i want is for her to be happy so i can totally kind of see through her eyes kind of that struggle where there is kind of a, a systemic maybe not even systemic more like that's someone else's problem and when it comes more personal that people can kind of try to sweep it under the rug or or, or you know that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that. Well, I yeah. I mean, I think that there are um, a lot of people who are non-conforming to the mainstream in some way, depending on what the mainstream is. Whether you're a woman, whether you're LGBTQ, whether you're a person of color, um, that you feel like your like your best bet is invisibility. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation, I include this in the book, with one of my um, black residency mates. And um, we had kind of reconnected and um, after several years. And I made a comment to him talking about this thing with the pregnancy. And I said, you know, I, I really am kind of ashamed that I, I, you know, capitulated so much to a system that clearly had very little regard for me. Mm -hmm. And his response was so interesting. He said, no, you're wrong. They loved you and they loved me because we made them look good, but we knew how easily we would be discarded if we stepped out of line. And that's why we tried so hard to just be perfect. And being perfect, I think, is a way of being invisible. If I don't complain, if I do my job perfectly, if I don't cause problems for anybody, if I don't embarrass anybody or make anybody uncomfortable, then I will be okay here. Well, that's an exhausting way to live. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you do talk about uh, imposter syndrome and I find it fascinating because it's something I deal with a lot. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with that? Sure. Well, first, just, just to define imposter syndrome a little bit and just give a little background on it. So, so imposter phenomenon was a term that was coined by a couple of psychologists back in 1978. <clears throat> now, uh, and it and it was um, described as being, oops, let me just 
Sorry about that. No worries. Uh, it was it was described as being particularly prevalent in high achieving women, mm-hmm. and we since know that it it very much affects um, men too. But but basically, what it is. Sorry. <laughs> what it is, is, um, and I have a sign on my door too. Uh, what it is, is um, it's this feeling you have that no matter what you achieve, whether it's um, a job or a promotion or, a, you know, a, perhaps a work of art that you've created, no matter or an organization you founded or a podcast that you founded, no matter what you achieve, there's always sort of a little asterisk next to it. And the asterisk says, well, but you know, you got lucky. Um, There wasn't anybody else who was available. Um, You kind of fooled people into thinking you were better than you were. And um, this this is something that is really common. You mentioned in your introduction that this is very common in the arts. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. It's also incredibly common in uh, medicine uh, and, and in many other fields. And I think um, the conclusion I've come to is that what this is really about is a kind of um, internalized bias, whether it's sexism, racism, homophobia, um, ageism, ableism, or even just, um, you know, a by you know the way society values, for example, the arts as opposed to more remunerative activities. And there's this kind of drip, drip, drip that you know you hear in your subconscious for years and years and years that tells you that, eh, you know, you think you're great, you're not that great, mm-hmm. and you believe it. And the way it comes out is in that little asterisk. Um, I mentioned in the book that though that paper describing imposter phenomenon came out a couple of years before I started medical school, I had never heard that term. But clearly, I, I had the phenomenon because my best friend in medical school and I called ourselves the asterisks. As in, yes, we got into this medical school, asterisk, they probably didn't have too many applicants that year. Right. And here's, and here's the, the challenge with imposter syndrome, is that what you think is, okay, if I could just like get into this school or get this job or win this prize, then that feeling's going to go away, but it doesn't. It get, it gets worse. It throws gas on the fire because the higher you rise, the more of an imposter you feel like you are. Like so, you're an artist, say, and oh gosh, all you want is this prestigious gallery show. Please, please, please. That's all I want. And then I'm going to feel like a real artist. Well, then you get it, and you think. Yeah, but I had a connection. I knew someone. This other guy deserved it more. Right. So that's never a fix. And I feel Um, like when you kind of achieve those goals, too, it puts, like you said, it it adds fuel to fire because it almost puts more pressure on you 
yeah. to kind of in your mind be at that level you know exactly. if you achieve that gallery show or you get that you know appointment to a, you know head physician or whatever then you suddenly like oh crap now now i have more responsibility now i have to show that i am at that level and it, i think yes. that just kind of yes more responsibility and also more vulnerability because you feel like oh, and more exposure well mm -hmm. okay now i've got the gallery show now i've got the big job well the you know the jig is up now everybody's going to see what I knew all along, which is that I was inadequate. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, all right, is, so if achievement isn't the cure, what's the cure? I think the cure is a little bit of, of uh, critical thinking and also a little bit of um, doing what we're doing now, which is talking about it. Mm -hmm. So, Let's start with the critical thinking. So let's think about this. Let's say, okay, all right, you're an imposter. What would it look like for you to be not an imposter? Like, like how good would you have to be? Would you have to be perfect? Well, that's not achievable. Right. Would you have to be almost perfect? Like, so what does that look like to not be an imposter? So it, it really, the whole thing, the logic of the thing kind of breaks down a little bit. In terms of the sharing, I think that's really important because like all kinds of shame, and imposter syndrome is shame. It's just, a, it's just another name for a very particular kind of shame. Yeah. Um, uh, like all forms of shame, it thrives on isolation. Everybody who has imposter syndrome thinks that either they're the only one who has it or, well, other people have it, but it's not justified. Right, like those right. artists, they think they're imposters, but they're not imposters. Right. Me, really, I'm an imposter. So once you start talking about this stuff and you realize how almost universal this is, then, getting back to critical thinking, you have to ask yourself, okay, wait a minute. Statistically speaking, could we all be imposters? That doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean, the, the opposite of being an imposter is, is what? You know? And I think also there are other roles in our lives where... Uh, even those of us who suffer badly from imposter syndrome, where we would say, you know, we don't feel like imposters. For example, um, I never felt like an imposter, even at my worst imposter syndrome, I never felt like an imposter as a parent. Mm -hmm. Does that mean I was a perfect parent? God, no. God, no. Well, so so why wasn't I an imposter as a parent. I mean, that's a really important high stakes job. Right. If I wasn't perfect, well, I was doing the best I could and I kept trying hard um, and I kept coming back to it and I'm human and sometimes, you know, I suck. And, <laughs> and I, guess what? That's true of doctors and artists too. Yeah. It's really interesting that you bring that up. It, when I had that retail job, I mean, I worked retail since, you know, like I was 16, since I was old enough to work. 
you know, at, at one point I ran a team of like 30 people and it never, I never felt uncomfortable. I never had that in that environment, whether it was because the amount of time I spent in that industry or there was more uh, uh, concrete, you know, reinforcement of, well, I, you know, I have years and years of written reviews and, you know, promotions that have reinforced my confidence in that. But then you go outside of that and in Ebri Art and the things that I've done and, you know, someone will ask me for my opinion or, or call me into a meeting to, to discuss some things. And I'll just be like, why am I here? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so weird. Well, I, w- I actually want to suggest a, another possibility, though, for why you didn't feel like an imposter in that role. Because um, so one question I was asked recently was, well, do you feel like an imposter as a writer? I mean, after all, you know, I came to it pretty late mm-hmm. in life. I was in my 40s when I started taking writing classes. Uh, in my 50s when I got my MFA, and here I am. I'm in my 60s publishing my book. So somebody asked, asked me, do you feel like an imposter? And I said, you know what? I don't. And I thought, well, okay, why is that? And I think it's because, yes, of course, like all writers, you know, I read the reviews and the ratings and care what people think and so forth. But the generation of the work came very much from within. Mm-hmm. It came very much from myself. Um, my identity as a writer was created by me. I wasn't who someone else told me I was in that regard. For you, I wonder if in retail you felt like yourself. Oh, God, please don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I hated those jobs. Well, maybe so. But the way in which you chose to interact with people, that was probably driven by your own personality and your own values. And um, maybe you felt like um, the success you achieved doing so um, made sense. You were doing what you thought was right and it worked out um, as opposed to sort of being told how to be. I I think. I almost, I almost want to say it might be a little bit of the exact opposite when oh. in retail, there's a, a, a very hard structure, you know, the Christmas decorations go out on this day. And, you know, so, you know, okay, th- there's, there's very little of you, you're, you're just, ba- you know, you're taking a corporate plan and executing it. And as long as you execute it the correct way, it's right. Where, you know, with something like an there's no, corporate plan it's more just my ideas and and so i think it's more it's more exposing me for me you know and personally putting myself out there so there it's you know and i've you know there's no secret on this podcast i've talked about it before but i've always struggled with self-esteem issues and so i think when people tend to give me credit for things that i have you know were an idea and I, i i executed myself that I think it tends to be more like, oh, no, no, that's not deserved. You know, like, oh, I don't deserve that. Hmm. So I think that, you feel might... that you feel, that's interesting. So you feel that way about the podcast. 
Um, you know, I don't. The podcast I started just for fun. So, you know, much like you're writing, it was kind of a hobby. It gets a little imposter syndrome when we get, you know, downloads in, in weird pl- You know, we got downloaded in uh, uh, o- Oman the other day, which I just learned was a country. Didn't even know where it was. Uh, so that's where it starts to feel a little strange or, or people will recognize me from the podcast. That's when it, that kind of kicks in. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I, I'm just talking to one person. I don't think about anyone else actually hearing it, even though I can go on to the website and see the number of downloads. It's just a number. But like when you interact with someone and, I, you know, I've had people stop me on the street um, locally and be like, hey, you know, I'm a big fan. And it's just it, t- it takes me like 45 seconds to even like con- like register what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's 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 started off just as a fun way to talk to people and, and then it kind of you know it's very strange it's it's a weird yeah, experience yeah. well the the other sort of the other component of the thinking about it a bit critically is realizing that you know if you have x numbers of many people you know downloading your podcast time after time it just doesn't make sense to think that you've you've fooled them somehow. Yeah. yeah. In the same way that you know people who have been in a job for years and feel like imposters. I mean, at this point, you know, if you have fooled that many people over that much time, I mean, you should get an Academy Award. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean either. Either, you know, what are the possibilities there? Um, these people are very gullible or stupid or have terrible taste or judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you're really not fooling them. Um, and I just think it has to do with our very warped expectations of ourselves. Because after all, um, we don't bring these kinds of expectations to other people. You know, how many other people, you know, those of us who have imposter syndrome, how many other people do we think, oh, wow, that person's a fraud, that person's a fraud, that person's a fraud. We don't. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. And I I think part of it is, you know, we experience all our faults very viscerally. So if someone says something where like, oh, you know, you're, you're like, I've had people say, you know, I really like your style of interview. It's very comfortable, relaxed, whatever. But then I'm like, yeah, but you didn't see the part where I was looking for my keys for 45 minutes this morning while I was holding my keys. I'm an idiot. Sure. But, sure. you know, so like we kind of internalize all those like really silly universal things that everyone does, you know. Right. You know, looking for well, your cell phone right. when it's in your pocket or whatever. Sure. And this has been so much exacerbated by, you know, um, by social media where everybody um, presents such edited uh, versions of themselves, mm-hmm. uh, curated versions of themselves. And then, of course, who was it who said that, you know, you shouldn't compare your insides to other people's outsides? Oh, I and, like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you're talking yeah. uh, about. I mean, I feel the need. I had this yesterday. I did a, a you know, a Zoom uh, facilitated a, a, a workshop uh, and, you know, felt the need to to explain that even though it looked like I was 
Uh, I was uh, presiding over this from, you know, my country maps. In <laughs> fact, I was sitting next to a, a vase of, you know, fake flowers and my pile of, of unfolded laundry was sitting on the bed. <laughs> okay. um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we all go through that. Yeah. So kind of to circle back to your book a little bit, what would be your advice for a young woman getting started in the medical industry in some way, shape or form? You know, the same, the same as my advice for young women um, and men for that matter, um, in any field, um, um, especially ones that are very hierarchical and male dominated as medicine is, uh, which is to look for women in positions of power and influence. Um, and, you know, because, um, because, and there are, there are relatively few of them. Uh, mm -hmm. we've, we've made a lot of progress in our numbers at the entry level. There are more women than men going to medical school right now. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, that is excellent. Unfortunately, they're not getting promoted and they're not becoming deans and they're not becoming hospital presidents. There are exceptions to that, but there is a big skew there. Um, so I, I would say is to try to, um, try to, first of all, try to identify um, mentors uh, who look like you, um, if possible. But also, also to, to realize that um, it really is possible, and I, perhaps I sound, even at my advanced age, very naive saying this, but it really is possible to be successful by being yourself. And if you're in a professional situation in which you feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time, and in which you feel you constantly have to rein yourself in, um, then it may be time to move on and look for a different one. Um, you know, there are realities, there are bills to pay, but um, I find all too often that women particularly describe to me, you know, uh, research projects that they're not particularly passionate about, that they're afraid to let go of because, you know, in the same way I was afraid to ask for an accommodation for my pregnancy. Well, if I, if I speak up about this or if I give that up or if I express myself in this particular way, then the whole house of cards will fall and I'll be left with nothing. I think that's less true than we think it is. Yeah, that kind of sounds like sort of wrapped in to not dissimilar from the imposter syndrome aspect where you, where your perception of the situation just isn't accurate. Yeah, well, but I think we can be forgiven for feeling that way because I think Oh, sure. That, yeah. I think that we're, you know, this is what we're taught. Mm -hmm. Um you know, we, we are, particularly women, are taught to make things comfortable for other people, even when we are uncomfortable ourselves. You know, I, I talk in the book uh, quite a bit about my own uh, mother, um, and, um, and uh, you know, she was very much a woman of her generation until she decided to stop being a housewife 
uh, and go to law school when she was in her 40s. Uh, and that was in, in about 1970, kind of at the dawn of the second wave uh, a women's movement. Um, but, you know, one thing I, I say about her is that uh, she very much saw it as her job to make things nice for everybody else. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot of us women, particularly, um, you know, we don't do it in the way my mother did and, you know, arranging the pretty platters and having the hair done just so, you know, when the husband came home, um, you know, that was a generational thing. But I, I think in the workplace, uh, women often feel like it is our job to make sure that everything is very placid and comfortable for everyone else, even at the expense of our own boys. Yeah, and it's, it's – I try to be very cognizant uh, of, of other people – other people's experiences. And, and so I, I see things and it's the one that just jumps out in my mind is I've seen many uh, women complain about being told to smile more. Or why, you know, why are she smiling? Absolutely. And On the it, street all the time. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things like it never occurred to me that that was uh, sexist or, or, you know, insulting in any way. And I, I can't think of a time that I, I said that to anybody, but it, it's just one of those, even those simplest things where it's like, well, you should be doing what I want you to do. That's right. Well, and even more specifically, you should be doing the thing that makes me feel more comfortable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's tough. And, and I wish I, I wish people could see that from their, the other standpoint, because if, if as a guy, if someone kept telling you to smile, you'd probably have some choice words for them and move on mm -hmm. with your day and be like, what's wrong with that person? But then it, it's just a really strange dynamic. And it's interesting. The older I get, the more that I see of it and kind of like, Oh man, you know, I didn't realize that was problematic or, and mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, so I think books like yours are really important mm -hmm. um, to kind of, to, to bring awareness and, and, light to it do you feel that there are a lot of men that read your book yes um and and that delights me um uh you know for a number of reasons i mean i mean there are men who read it because they're in medicine mm -hmm. and there's a lot of, of what i talk about about medical training and practice um, interactions with patients um you know balancing uh, being a human being with being a doctor uh, that are, you know, certainly relevant to, to men in medicine. Uh, but um, a lot of men uh, have read it uh, who, who aren't in medicine because really, really what the book is about um, is how do you figure out how to be a person? How did I figure out how to be a person? Uh, how do you figure out, you know, who you are? Uh, and so in that way, I hope it transcends medicine and I hope it transcends uh, gender. You know, I, I think there's a lot to be said about that. And I always find that when I try to work at someone else's expectations, I struggle. But if I work just 
as Andy, just being myself, doing, you know, working hard and just doing what I think is best, um, I tend to achieve far more and, you know, gain more friends and, you know, have more, you know, influence. And, and it just seems that when you're more genuine, people respond to that far better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, they respond, they respond to it better. Um, and it also invites them to be more genuine. And that, but then there's the other thing, which is that if you are genuinely yourself and people aren't responsive to that, they're not your people. So, True. It, so it's okay. Yeah. You don't have to be everybody's people. Yeah, you don't have to be everybody's friend, right? You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where can people go to uh, find your book, A Letter to a Young Female Physician? Well, it's sold in uh, every place so, uh, uh, books are sold. Of course, I would uh, prefer that uh, you buy it from your favorite indie bookstore. Um, if you would like a personalized uh, copy, um, for yourself or, or as a gift, um, conqueredbookshop.com uh, is selling those. I will scroll over there uh, and, and write whatever message uh, you would like me to write, uh, and they will mail it to you. Uh, if, um, but, but it's sold everywhere books are sold, and uh, uh, you can get all those links at my website, which is suzannecoven.com. Are, are there Kindle versions or audiobook versions available? Yes, uh, there is a Kindle ebook version, and the uh, audio version, which I've just recorded, will come out on Audible and everywhere else. Uh, I believe on September seventh. Yeah, uh, you did it yourself. How how was that experience? I feel like that'd be it was strange. really it was really hard. Yeah, uh, I, you know, um, uh, I'm not a singer. And what I realized is that um, there's a kind of a breath control uh, involved in reading page after page after page that the average person doesn't uh, possess. I had a wonderful sound engineer who coached me through it. Uh, and um, uh, it, it was actually quite a wonderful experience. That's very cool. Do you have plans for another book anytime soon? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's, uh, I tell people it's kind of like, you know, having a baby while you're doing it, um, you think no sane person would ever do it again. <laughs> and, and then after you do it, you say, yeah, that wasn't so bad. I could do that again. <laughs> I guess that's, that's how the human race gets perpetuated. Um, uh, I'm not sure there's a, a biological reason why one feels the urge to write another book, but most people who write one want to write another. I think all kidding aside, I think there's a reason for that, which is that there's this, you know, when you write a book or, you know, create any kind of art, um, uh, you know, there's this sort of deep sense of intimacy and truth telling. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you want to have that experience again. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm giving myself a summer uh, to kind of refill the well and, um, and uh, in the fall, I'll be working on another book. Nice. That's exciting. Uh, well, I just want to say thank you for taking the time. I mean, this flew by because it was really, it was really fascinating, and um, definitely outside our, our normal guests. But you know, I, 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 I thought it was great. Well, it was wonderful to talk to you, Andy. You are not a fraud. 
I'm not a fraud. <laughs> oh, th- <God>. thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. No, thank you so much. Um, and when you're when you're done your new book and you're and you're ready to uh, you know promote that, please come back. We I'd love to you know talk more. I'd love that too. That'd be fantastic. So thank you again. And so our listeners, make sure you go out and check a letter to a young female physician. And now we'll catch you guys again next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can find us on all social medias at inebriart or on Instagram at inebriart6. You can email us at inebriart at yahoo.com. And make sure you listen to the other podcasts on the Inebriart Podcast Network, including Bar Talk, Old Colony Cast, Retro Redoctopus, America's Hometown Horror Podcast, and our newest one, Theme Park Legends, a podcast about working at theme parks. What else? And we'll catch you again next time.